If you had to guess, what is more life-threatening? What is more damaging to your longevity than obesity or cigarettes? What would you guess? Well, you don't have to guess that long because you're not in the room with me. It's just me and this microphone. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put you out of your misery. Do you know what that is? Loneliness. In 2015, Julianne Holt Lundstad, who's a psychologist at Brigham Young, she and her colleagues did an analysis that looked at data on more than 3.4 million people using 70 different studies. And they found that the absence of social connections carries the same risk as smoking up to 15 cigarettes a day. It was worse than obesity for longevity. And they found that this is true across people of all ages and all genders. And what's alarming is that um, actually in 2010, the AARP did a study and they looked at 3,000 people, uh, 45 years old and up, and they found a whopping 35% of those 3,000 people scored in the lonely category. Friendship seems to be of critical importance to human beings. But I got to tell you, it's not easy. If 35% of us are struggling with it, that's a pretty big number. So this episode, my beloveds, is dedicated just to exploring the concept of friendship. And don't worry, I'm not doing it by myself because while I am while I am a good case study on friendship, I think, because I've got some really good ones, um, I've also been a case study in really bad friendships too. So I have called in an expert and you will recognize him if you are a fan of this show because he is none other than Dr. Adam Dorsey, who you might remember from episode seven, who uh, we called that episode episode, Emotions, The Data Men Miss. It's one of the most popular episodes that I've done. And Adam's a dream. He is a licensed psychologist working in a private practice in San Jose, California. And Adam's specialty is working with high-achieving adults with relationship issues, stress reduction, anxiety, and just trying to get more happiness in their lives. He's also the co-creator of Project Reciprocity, which is a very successful international resiliency program based out of Facebook's headquarters in Menlo Park, California. Adam is married, shout outs to Ariane, and has two darling, wonderful young boys. Actually, they're not that young anymore now that I think about it, they're getting older. And he has a dog named Rafi that works with him in his office. And I got to tell you guys, Rafi was very stressed during this recording. It's something about all my equipment set Rafi like under the table. He could not. So if you hear towards the end, like a jangle, it's because Rafi can sense that the, <laughs> the session was over and he was giving himself a little like, whoo, shake. I'm glad that's over. Anyway, without any further ado, here is my conversation with Adam Dorsey about friendship. So Adam, I wanted to have you back because I've been thinking about something and I know you've been thinking about this something. This is a topic that is near and dear to your heart. And that is the topic of adult friendships. Yes. The reason I think it's especially poignant right now, there was recently an article in Harper's Bazaar about the fact that men don't have friendships at the same level that women do. And as a result, there's an undue emotional burden on spouses 
of the female variety. So I feel like there's something sort of in the zeitgeist right now about adult friendships. And so I want to begin by asking you, we all know that friendships are important conceptually, but the reality is you get married, you marry your best friend, hopefully you're attracted to your best friend, you have kids, you're so busy keeping your chin above the waterline that nobody has time for friendships. And then when you do kind of fall into some friendships, they're really just more good acquaintances. And there seems to be this hole left in your life. Give me your take on adult friendships. Let's start there. First off, yes. We, let's start off even in childhood. Mm. As children, we're friends with the person who lives next door. We're not particularly selective. It's geography that dictates that. Mm -hmm. Then as we grow in high school, we're friends with people who are cool or who make us more socially popular or who kind of fit in our social niche. And it's often activity-based. Mm. In college, somebody in your dorm, somebody, once again, geography dictates perhaps somebody in your major, somebody in a club that's similar to yours. And really great friendships can occur in all of these stages of life. And after college, guess what happens? We disperse, we move. Mm. And that's really painful. A lot of people are moving job to job, city to city, mm -hmm. and they don't get to have these consistent touch points through friends. And they miss out on something that's so crucial. And it's for men and women, both mm -hmm. are suffering terribly. Mm -hmm. But to borrow a line from Esther Perel, she just... Who I love. <laughs> who, that who, podcast, <laughs> I cannot get enough. I mean, can anyone? She's it's so best. good. She's amazing. Anyway. She's she's absolutely brilliant. Yeah. I'm going to paraphrase her. I'll be probably paraphrasing a lot of people mm -hmm. who I love. But Esther says, back in the old days, we lived in villages and we had people who we did a whole host of activities with. We had somebody with whom we hunted, somebody with whom we gardened, someone with whom mm -hmm. we drank and went out in the town, and someone who helped us with child rearing. It took a village. Mm. And now the entire village, all of the burden is on the spouse. Fuck. That's right. All of it. That's and right. that's too much. And that's it's not right. good for that primary relationship when all of it falls on the spouse. Honestly, I feel like even men who have strong male relationships, like he's not going deep with that village around him. He saves that just for spouse. And you're talking about vulnerability, the yeah. ability to really feel safe and show yourself yes. fully yeah. with all the warts. Yes. And, and men feel very safe with their women's to do that. And if they do, that's actually a very good thing, even if it's undue burden on the woman to hold the sole responsibility. The longitudinal studies are very clear. Having a strong primary relationship is very healthful, very important. And if we have that, that's actually a good starting point. And the primary relationship should be that mm. primary. Mm -hmm. You don't want the first person you call to necessarily be somebody outside of that primary relationship. One of the things that we're trying to cultivate, and Dr. Stan Tatkin, who is one of the great neuroscientists who's talking a lot about how the brain acts in relationship, wired mm. for love, mm. fabulous stuff. He's just on point, And he really suggests that couples need to be each other's primary source initially. And of course, it doesn't preclude us from having really powerful friendships mm. to dissipate some of the energy. And actually, let's talk about that for a second, because I 
sometimes catch myself. Sal's busy. He's having a busy day. I don't want to bother him. So I'll call my best friend, Aaron, and I'll call him and say, this is what's going on. And then I'll debrief with Sal later. But Aaron Kennedy is who I'm initially calling or Naomi or, you know, my close, close friends. And when Aaron moved to New York City, my therapist said, well, now Sal's going to need to be actually the primary emotional relationship. And I was like, oh shit. I didn't even know I was doing that. I I didn't know. Yeah. It's very common. And that's one of the reasons that the book is so good. It's because this is a very common issue for spouses to perhaps talk to someone else, bring in a third, so to speak, Mm. a third party could be a friend. It could be a therapist Mm. or they could be silent to everyone, which is very detrimental to one's health. Those feelings of loneliness are bad for our immune systems. And you can feel alone inside of a relationship. You can feel alone inside of a village. Why is that? Being surrounded by people does not mean that you feel connected. No. You might not be with your peeps. You might not be in touch with yourself for how do I even talk to people? How do I connect with people? Yep. And unfortunately, it's not something that we're particularly organically good at for the most part. Mm. We have to practice it. Mm. And that's one of the biggest problems. I don't do yoga because I suck at it. I am very, very inflexible in terms of uh, my muscles. Mm. And I know that people don't like doing things that they're not good at doing. Yeah, And this takes work. They think it should be easy. It should be as easy as it is on TV. And it's not. It takes work. But there's something else. There are two other factors. There's Mm. certainly the vulnerability of rejection, Mm. which is really scary. And there's the fact that you might just, for whatever reason, reject or be rejected. Mm. It's high psychological stakes. Yeah, there's a lot going on. So let's pretend like you were creating a utopia. How is it supposed to be, Adam? A husband relies on wife for X, and then the second layer is friends. Like, how is it supposed to be? What's the healthy version of primary relationship with spouse or partner and secondary relationships with friends? What's that supposed to look like? Well, first and foremost, we have to have good marriages. Who you select as your mate is so crucial. I mm-hmm. often think about the great baseball player, Rod Carew, mm-hmm. who on strike three count would be looking at pitches so carefully. It was almost as if he could read the seams on the ball. If he got a good pitch, he would purposely foul that pitch into the stands. He was waiting for a great pitch. And that's how we need to be wow. when we select our spouse. When we select our spouse, we are basically determining our destiny, how happy we will be. So much of our happiness relies on that one choice. So first off in the utopia, we are conscientious. We wait for the right pitch. We wait for the right pitch. <laughs> we, we, we're we willing to say goodbye to a good pitch, waiting for a great or awesome pitch. Mm. And it's incumbent that we have this. Our children rely on this. In fact, the axis around which our children's world spins is the quality of the connection between the mom and the dad, or the dad and the dad and the mom and the mom, whoever are the parents. For this utopia, we can borrow from some of the blue zones that Butner talks about. For example, in uh, Okinawa, they have these groups that meet together, these things called moai, meeting with a common purpose. Oh. I love this idea of these little groups that meet with a common purpose. And within the village, you'd have a common purpose. Perhaps it would be something to make the village better, something to make family more fun or enriched or meaningful. In Sardinia, Another one of these blue zones where people live the longest, by the way, sorry, blue zones, just to clarify, are places Mm -hmm. on Earth where this National Geographic 
expert found that people tend to live the longest. Yeah. And, uh, we took a surf trip to uh, Nosara in Costa Rica, which is in a blue zone. Oh, that's so cool. And it's the vibe is amazing. No wonder they live to be 100 there. It's and I incredible. would bet that they know how to do friends well. They do, because they go surf together. It's a surf town. That's awesome. The Seventh-day Adventists out in Loma Linda, California, they have potlucks. I mean, yeah. it doesn't matter. You want to have good quality connections with people where there's kindness. Kindness has got to be present. Mm. We don't want some type of this kind of quiet toxicity mm. where people are suffering each other. I feel like too many gatherings, we're all hovering at the small talk level. Sure. And I cannot with that. And small talk is act one. We've got to have small talk. We've got to coordinate. We've got to sense into the other person. Are you someone who's safe? Can I share yes. something? Can I do a micro share of something that's vulnerable? And let's see how you respond. And see how you respond. And yeah. can we take it to the next level? Are you going to shame me? Are you going to really mirror me and love me through this? Mm-hmm. And does this portend well for the future of our friendship? In terms of <laughs> I'm going to borrow another one of my all-time favorite quotes. Uh, Ross Perot once said, "Eagles." Ross don't. Perot. <laughs> now that is, I mean, you did not just. I did. It. I did. <laughs> I, did. I know. I know. Uh, it's one of the all-time great quotes. Okay, let's hear it. I don't know that it'll change your mind about Ross Perot politically. It certainly didn't for me, but I, I love this quote so much. And again, one of the reasons why we need to be connecting with people who have different opinions from our own, because oftentimes there is so much beauty to glean. Yeah. And here's what Ross said. He said, eagles do not flock. You have to find them one by one. Oh, shit. Right? (gasps) That is so good. So even within a community, sometimes as you're suffering silently and feeling like I want to numb the pain by drinking. Yes. Well, to whom can you gravitate within this milieu? Is there someone here who's your go-to person who, when the group meets together, that you don't feel like getting hammered to avoid all the feelings that show up? Yeah. Oh my God, the eagle thing. That is so good. Because I think about my two best friends and we sniffed each other out in a work environment and we have consciously cultivated that friendship. When I moved away from San Francisco, we said we are meeting once a month for dinner, no matter what. Brilliant. And we go away, the three of us, twice a year, just the three of us. I know a lot of people think, oh my God, how can she do that? It is so important to me. In fact, we're going away for 10 days for my, you know, Naomi's 50th and my 45th. And I don't think I would be the same person without them in my life. It's the most important friendship I think I've ever had. One of the most important friendships I've ever had, but it took so much time and I found them one by one. So, and you did. And what I would also do within this utopian community, I think I would actually educate what does it mean to be a good friend. And let's talk about for good friends, we need to have three great overarching qualities. Hmm. We have to have caring. We have to have integrity. Mm. And we have to have some form of congeniality. I read about this actually in a psych today. And I just was blown away by those three overarching ideas. And what was the first one again? Actually, the first one, I actually got them a little bit out of order in my mind, but integrity would be number one. So talk about integrity, though, because that's a word that can, it's like innovation. Right. It doesn't mean anything anymore. So if you want to break it down, it means honesty. It means showing up when you say you're going to show up. It means being willing to (laughs) ride in the limo and ride on the bus with your friend. (laughs) Uh, It doesn't mean just being there in the good times. It means being a true friend through thick and thin. Yeah. It means sacrifice. 
I love the TV show Friends. One of the benefits of having an adolescent living in my home is I get to rewatch Friends. Oh, yeah. And so they good. do friendships well. They show all of the vulnerabilities. They show all the sacrifice. You know, I was going to go see the Knicks tonight, but you're having a bad night, so I'm going to stay with you. I'm going to sacrifice mm. my Knicks tickets. Well, it would be harder with the Warriors. But, right. I mean, okay, <laughs> but, fair but, yeah. A good friend would still do that. Yeah. They would say, you know what? This actually and matters you, more. This is and that's I, integrity. This is what I find so alarming about reality television, the real housewives of X and Y and Z and who gives a shit. Mm. I feel like shows like Friends model good friendships. They do. Shows like Real Housewives, they aren't friendships. It is theater. Yep. It is drama. And it is bullshit. And I hate that women watching this learn to tolerate that bullshit in their relationships. Right. And when you're describing that phenomenon, you're actually describing one-upmanship, one-up womanship, and this type of contentious competition, which actually flies in the face of all of the data. The data is very clear. Harvard data shows over longitudinal studies of 75 years that the quality of our friendships matter more than our cholesterol and a whole host of other things, including our genes, in terms of our longevity. Let's just put a finer point on that. The quality of our friendships matters more. In terms of our longevity. Than cholesterol, genes. And a host of other medical measures. These guys over the 75-year study, they're now on the fourth incarnation in terms of leadership over the study over these men who've uh, it's it was men who were harvard grads and men who lived in southie boston several hundred of them i don't know the exact figure i think it was someone in the 200 300s and they looked at them over 80 years to see what factors mattered most in terms of their longevity and whether they were harvard grads or came from very poor lower ses means mm. such as these men from southie mm the number one criterion was the quality, the quality of their friendships. And that could include the quality of the marriage itself, that alone. But when you're talking about the real housewives, we are looking at a toxic type of contentious relationship. Mm -hmm. We're looking at frenemies. And frenemies where the top, I would say, descriptor of the friendship is ambivalence. It creates... I love you, but I hate you. And I love you, but I hate you. And I'm tossing and turning and ruminating over this friendship. That's right. <gasps> that's right. And that's not good. Rumination is no, a bad thing. No. It turns out it's a quality. did I do quality... something wrong? Exactly. Did I say something wrong? How do you define integrity vis-a-vis what we just said about the housewives? Championing is a big part of integrity. It mm. means saying, I want you to become your best self. Mm. And it might even mean that you move away from me. It might mean that you are in a job that makes me feel left behind, but I'm going to champion you. That end of Goodwill Hunting, speaking of Southie, when Ben Affleck basically kicks Matt Damon out and says, listen, you got to get out of Southie. That's right. You got to go, you got to go West. That's right. That's a friend. Mm. And ideally, even if the friend is cast into a higher, so to speak, plane, the friendship continues, yeah. God willing, yeah. whether it's in person, via FaceTime, yeah. uh, through any medium possible that mm-hmm. you stay in touch. Okay, so that's integrity. What were the other two? The other two are, are kindness, mm. um, you know, showing up, you know, oh my God, I know you had a really bad day. Here's, <laughs> here's some cookies that I know you particularly like, or hey, 
let's go out and have some coffee. Let's go mm-hmm. have a drink. Let's mm-hmm. let's hang. Let's just hang and vibe through this pain. Yes. I like this idea. Hang and vibe through this pain. <laughs> yes, Adam. Hang and vibe. Let's just hang and vibe let's through this pain. I, I'm with you. I'm totally feeling you. Yeah. This is uh, my idea. Of, I, I came up with this idea of hang and vibe. It was the byproduct of what I noticed with a particular friend. We would just hang and vibe. And there's a headier concept called interpersonal neurobiology. And it, you, if you say that at a party, you'll sound immediately really, really smart. Um, but interpersonal <laughs> neurobiology broken down is hanging and vibing. It's basically when your face lights up and their face lights up. It's when you're mirroring. It's, it's when you're mirroring, hanging. Yeah. It's just hanging out. And that's yeah. such a primal need. Yeah. We are wired to need that. Yeah. So it doesn't matter if you're male or female. We all need it. As, yeah. In as much as I laugh when I think about, you know, well, men don't need friendships or that there's this feminization going on. No, it's actually men need friendships as much as your car needs an oil change if it's not an electric car. Wow. You need you need that. Yeah, uh, you have to do it. I mean, if you care about, well, you don't need it. You, you could decide not to do it mm-hmm. because you suck at it, which mm-hmm. is really uh, an unfortunate, unfortunate decision. You'll have a shorter, in all likelihood, you're contributing to the likelihood. It's not guaranteed you could mm-hmm. live to be 110, but it's contributing to the likelihood that you will live shorter and sadder. Mm. So talk to me about why we tolerate anything less than kindness. For the first half of my life, I tolerated a lot of unkindness in my relationships because I thought, just toughen up. You know, you got to suck it up. This is life. So what's the number one punishment in prison? Solitary confinement. Mm. Comes from the same source, fear. That's right. So we have been conditioned throughout the ages. We've evolved as a social species. And if you want to look at society, banishment is historically has meant certain death. And what happens in our brains is we actually go to a place of fear. It's better to be in a crappy relationship than none. Right. right. And there's the fear of death within us. That's the part of the the other. It's primordial. primordial. Right. I mean, it's so deeply in us. We have to get conscious so that we can be above our predisposition, right? I call it the ultimate control alt delete to use a computer term. We have to do a massive system override to be aware of these things and to say, you know what, actually I will tolerate the discomfort of Mm. not being in a relationship Mm -hmm. rather than suffer through this abuse or suffer through a, you know, a really bad one. And it's also from an economic perspective, it represents an opportunity cost. Mm -hmm. An opportunity cost is when you invest here, you don't have resources for there. We don't have enough time if we're investing in crappy relationships to really go out there and slog it out and try to find a good one. That's right. Uh, and that's right. It has a huge cost. Huge cost. So in, in even with my own kids, I try and get them to think, like, how do you feel when you're leaving a conversation with that person? Oh, my gosh. You're talking about my driveway test. What's the drive? Tell me the driveway test. It's the driveway test. So one of the ways that I, you know, ask the people who come to see me in my office mm. to assess the quality of their friendships and are you investing well in your time, which is, by the way, the only non-renewable resource we have. You can lose your health yeah. and get it back. You can lose your money and you can get it back. You can't lose your time and get it back. Ooh. So if you're if you're investing in bad friends, you're losing a lot of time. And one of the best ways to figure this out is the driveway test. How do you feel as you're driving away from the meeting with your friend? Do you feel full of life, taller? Do you feel happier? Or do you feel shorter? Do you feel tense? Do you feel deflated? 
Or do you feel like, did I do something? Right. Did I say something wrong? And everyone could have a negative driveway test once in a while. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. mean that it's all, you know, it's not roses all and butterflies. Roses, right. Yeah. Uh, but if it's chronic that you're driving away and feeling bad, it may mean that the other person is talking the entire time, or maybe they are lambasting your ideas or not supporting you and championing you or engaging in the types of kindness mm -hmm. and the congeniality that is so needed for a friendship. Okay, so what's congeniality? That's congeniality is a sense of humor and a kind sense of humor. It doesn't mean ripping on somebody. Sarcasm, by the way, shares uh, etymological roots with the idea of to tear flesh. And I love sarcasm. But when we're doing it with friends or eye rolling, when they're bringing out maybe a woo-woo idea, well, I mean, when Phoebe on Friends brought up a kind of an out there idea, yeah. they tolerated it and championed her for the yeah, most part. Yeah. That, you know, Smelly Cat was a great song. <laughs> <laughs> because, not because it was musically yeah. brilliant, but because they were friends. Yeah. And they championed her. And it was so her. It was so her. My and two so best friends are the least woo-woo people you will ever meet. They're both like atheists. They're both just very linear thinkers. And I am a fucking new age unicorn. Totally. And they love me for it. Like they may mentally be eye rolling, but they're like, you go Blanche. Cause that's our nicknames are Blanche. But that is so, that congeniality <laughs> is so true. And, and, and congeniality implies having a sense of humor about things, having, uh, you know, just holding a, it lightly, and holding it lightly. Right. Having uh, some levity with things, mm -hmm. but it doesn't mean ripping on another person or engaging in that type of Believe it or not, the idea of one-upmanship and ripping on people as a form of like common denominator for friends, you know. Ew. I don't do well in that environment, Adam. I was talking with one of the international leaders in research on psychopathy, which is a study of psychopaths and the, the horrors that they do. I just read a and book on that. <laughs> gnarly stuff, right? It's so compelling. It's so compelling and it's scary. It's terrifying. And, well, one of the hallmarks of a psychopath is sadism. And it turns out that ripping on your friend constantly like that is sadistic. And one of the things that we need in order to kind of recuperate from that is the ratio of the five to one. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but Barbara Fredrickson found that for every negative that transpires in a relationship, we need three just to neutralize, three positives to neutralize the negative and five positives to make it a net positive. So it's, of course, we're friends and we will fail our friends and we will hurt their feelings and we will we're human. say a sideways comment because we're, we're human. The important thing is having more positives over time and also having the ability to repair and the ability to have integrity and, and say, say, Hey, that hurt me or and vice versa. And I think I hurt I you. I think I hurt you. I'm super sorry about that. Yeah. And to take total responsibility. This no, is so... no buts, by the way, no buts, no buts. No buts. And I'm I, sorry if you felt I'm sorry that if way. you felt that way. Yeah, I'm no, sorry if, no, yeah. thank you. Next. So a couple weeks ago, I tried to make dinner for my family before we went to evening mass and I miscalculated how long a roast chicken would take. I right. had it on convection bake, Adam. I thought I could bang that shit out in 45 minutes. I was wrong. So I, I thought it was done. I'm like, Sal, come downstairs. Can you carve this roast beast? And he gets into that chicken and it's not done. And he looked at me with this look of con not contempt. That's probably too strong for it. But he was mad at me for miscalculating how long this fucking chicken would take. Mm. And I perceived that look 
and that sigh. And I was so hurt mm. because I was, here I am trying to get everybody ready for church, trying to get a nice chicken on the table before we go. Like, I'm trying to be Gwyneth Paltrow up totally. in this bitch. And I'm getting this feedback like, you dummy, we have to go to mass. And now this chicken is half baked and it's probably an expensive one from Whole Foods, which it was. <laughs> and I was so hurt. Yeah. And I felt so like betrayed that my partner would make me feel like shit for my botched attempt. And I sat down at the table and I was like, (laughs) I looked at the table and I'm like, this chicken is causing me a lot of emotional pain right now. And I said, Solomon, I need to talk about this later. And we talked about it and I'm like, it's one thing to be like, wow, you made a mistake on this chicken and now the schedule's kind of messed up. But it's another thing to make me feel like a fool or an idiot because I fucked up the chicken. And he was like, you're right. He owned it. I'm really sorry. I'm super sorry I did that. And that's what I love about Sal and I. Like He and I will both make mistakes, but we both just own it. And we do that, that five thing rule. You know, where there's so much in the bank account already that when we do something terrible, we own it and there's still reserves left. And how did you feel after that? I felt a couple things. My first reaction was huge relief, but also I felt proud of myself because my grooming, my cultural grooming was like, you dummy, you had one job and that was to make dinner because you're the wife and you fucked it up. And so I had to, not only did I have to deal with her inside my head, shame. I, and the shame, I had to be like, no, Bronwyn, it's 2019. You are not just a wife. You are a partner. You are part of a system, and you fucked up the chicken. And it doesn't have to mean anything other than you fucked up the chicken. What I love about the story is I would imagine that you and Sal, I know you and Sal have a great relationship. And we, I would I mean, ima- it's flawed, but it's good. The best of relationships have to be flawed. The question is, how is the repair? Is it quick? Mm. And are you able to feel stronger as a result afterwards? Yes, 100%. Yeah. And it, but it's it, taken us years to get there. And I think that's what people might not get about not just marriages, but friendships. Like it takes cycles and cycles of learning to shorten the distance between the offense and the conversation about the offense. Sure. And to have that with a sense of safety without, you know, I think a lot of women especially tolerate when their partner, when they say, hey, what you did really hurt me. And the partner goes victim. Right. Oh, I can't win. Or what do you mean that hurt you? Toughen up. Do you know the kind of pressure I'm under? Like we tolerate that stuff because we don't know there's another way. Right. What do you say to people that are like, what do you mean? Right. They're not willing to hear. They just don't know what arguing well looks like. Sure. What do you say to people like that? Yeah. So arguing well is not something that's taught in school. It takes incredible amounts of patience mutually, and it takes a lot of patience with oneself. Mm, So true. It's really painful because relationships are fundamentally messy. Now, if the relationship, if the hallmark of the relationship was constant offense and repair, offense and repair, and that was really We used going, to call it balling and brawling in college. So if it was There's constantly balling and brawling, <laughs> that's maybe maybe a sign, <laughs> maybe a sign that it's not a great relationship. Yeah. But I remember I was talking to a really good friend. I was on the phone with her and she was describing a relationship she was in and the problems kept on showing up. And I happened to, at the time, be weeding my garden. And I said, if you're weeding a garden, (laughs) the weeds should be less the next round. There should be fewer weeds. And I, I feel that way about 
problems within the relationship, they should be progressively fewer. progressively better yes. over time. Yes. So it means the ability to learn the power of words. The word but, for example, in a fight negates everything that precedes it. Mm. You know, I know I was wrong, but uh-uh. Mm-hmm. You gotta get rid you of just own it. You own it. I know I was wrong and that really hurt. If you have something to say about something else process related, don't negate what you've just apologized for. To truly apologize, there cannot be a but. There are a whole host of things that we need to look at linguistically when we're communicating in the context of of an argument and a disagreement. And in your practice, do you find that people are like, Jesus, Adam, this is a this is like a really elaborate decision tree I have to have in my brain when I'm having a fight with my partner. Like I know that a lot of people, even some of the techniques I give people, I try and make it as simple as possible, but it is such a series of intellectual choices you're making in a heated moment. Right. And so when the anxiety goes up in the heated moment, our yeah. intellectual functioning and the fight flutter freeze goes down. And my react if I'm in a fight in a professional setting, my limbic system responds differently than if I'm in a fight with Sal. Right. I have access to fewer resources when I'm in a fight with my husband than I do when I'm you know, having a tense moment with a client or in a work dynamic. So I sympathize with people that are like, how the fuck am I going to remember all this linguistic stuff you're throwing at me? Absolutely. Well, I try to keep it easy. I try to throw out a yeah. few conjunctions. And I also try conjunction, to- Conjunction, junction, what's your function? <laughs> you better believe what it. What does that mean? What do you mean conjunction? Uh, just the and or, but- Got it. But the and is good. And is good. The but is not. The or, well- I. I actually don't really talk about that so much, but the yeah. end and the butt. Yeah. But the other thing I do is I try to give them simple dance moves. Got and it. I think they can be used in friendship as well. And that is to make sure that one is the pitcher and one is the catcher. The pitcher shares what's going on. The catcher responds and just without any editorializing or elaboration says, almost in a parrot-like form, here's what I hear you saying. Ooh, and what so that does good. is it allows the other person to really be heard. And it also ensures that the catcher really catches what is being thrown at them. So instead of reacting, processing, making sense of what the pitcher's sending, you just catch it by articulating, it. this is what I heard you say. That's it. And it's such a, it sounds so simple, it's really hard to do. Especially because you're being triggered because they say the thing and you get mad about the right. thing. And you can't eye roll. You, you sit, you sit with open, you know, receptive body language. Yeah. <laughs> and it's really, really yeah. hard to do. It's very yeah. easy to say and hard to do. You know, I, I just recently read a quote from one of the most brilliant psychoanalysts who ever lived. His name was Eric Fromm. He was a, a Jewish German psychoanalyst who survived the horrors of the camp. And he wrote a book called The Art of Loving. And oh in it, he wrote this quote that just is, is, is transformative when you hear it. Love isn't something natural. Rather, it requires discipline, concentration, patience, faith, and the overcoming of narcissism. Ooh. It isn't a feeling. It's a practice. God damn. Right? Yeah. Best quote I've ever heard on love, it relates to it's true. romantic love or friendship love. It is messy. It's hard. It's and it requires so much vulnerability on both sides. And I think that might be why sometimes we pair off with wrong people, either in marriages or even in close friendships, because we get a zap of a good feeling and we think that that's love. Yep. And it ain't. It ain't. Because love is much bigger than that. It's a process. It's a discipline. It's like yoga. What you're describing there is sheer and mere 
hedonism. It yeah, just feels it just good feels in that good. moment. But when it comes time, you know, it's like it's like living in a straw hut. Yeah. But when when that storm comes, you have no, <laughs> you got nothing. And I think because of maybe you know the stories we grow up hearing, love is this goblet, you know, what is it called? The Holy Grail. And once you find it, you grasp it. And they think, oh, I found the Holy Grail because of how I feel. Right. And that ain't it. Right. We refuse to engage our intellect in this process. And we need to. We need to actually have a better intellectual grappling with what love is. Love is sacrifice. Love is the ability to override your own impulses and say, I'm going to listen to you because what you have to say is more important than what I'm feeling right now. Yeah, It's the recognition that feelings are not facts. Feelings are feelings and they're important and they predict a lot of very important data, but they are not facts. And it's the ability to separate intention from impact. Mm. Say, gosh, you know, when I saw you, you know, forget my birthday, I, I know that the intent was to let me know that I was not important to you. That was actually the impact. It was. It might have been the intent. Might have actually been. Oh my gosh! I'm. You know. I totally. I would have. Would have wanted to have remembered your birthday. Your birthday is very important to me, and I was Mm. just. I was just under an avalanche. I'm so sorry. Yeah. And the ability for repair. Repair is so huge. I've talked about it earlier, but there's a Jewish concept called teshuvah, where you basically repair the relationship. There's nothing more important in that religion than our relationship with fellow beings. Mm. That is the highest priority. And repairing those is what's done on Yom Kippur every year and making sure that you go into the new year with a clean slate. God, it's so interesting. I feel like that's a difference in Catholicism. Maybe not stated, but implied. There's this implication that the most important relationship is the one you have with God, but the problem is God can be a really lofty, clean right. notion. Humans are messy. Humans are messy. And it, it kind of like, so when you go to confessioner, you, our version of Yom Kippur and our version of making reparations is going to confession and you're sorting all that shit out with God, but you still don't go home and apologize to your people because you did your 10 Hail Marys. You're done. You're good. It's and, a problem. And confession is fabulous. There are certain things about it that mm-hmm. are very, very helpful and research is corroborating that. And the final act is apologizing to the person, making amends. Making it right. So here's a question I have for you. If we were in our utopian vibes, hanging and vibing, what should we consider to be our friendship bill of rights? What am I entitled to as a friend? Yeah. So friendship is always a contract. Mm. And you also really need to feel into the other person. Is this a person with whom I share an activity? And that's pretty much the limit. We go to baseball games together. We're both super to the Giants, but we don't really talk about feelings, Mm -hmm. but we love the Giants and we know the Giants well. And it's fun. And it's a shared activity. And that is the limit. It could be stated, or more likely, it is just kind of implied and that this is okay, the relationship. Right? That's right. okay. Where it becomes not okay is when what we expect. When, that yeah, we expect that the, the guy who's friend in the, the contract is we go to Giants game, and I expect him to help me move when that's not what he does. Yeah, and we get upset with him when he says I'm not available for that. Right, and that's like, well, that that's his right as well. It's ideal, of course, that, you know, in friendship that we are willing to override, but maybe that's not, that's not his jam. 
That, it makes so much sense because I have been disappointed over time, you know, various times with people who aren't giving me what I feel I give them. And then I, hearing you say it, I realized it was because the contract that I'd unconsciously <laughs> signed up for was, I'm going to take care of all of your emotional needs, but I'm not allowed to have any. Right. And that was, and without realizing it, that was the contract I was in. Sure. And you might even talk about it and re negotiate the contract to see could this in? involve something more and they have the opportunity to say yes or no and you're also vulnerable because they may say no oh. and i'm out yeah oh god it's so vulnerable you're so so right. much vulnerability so in terms of friendship oh, bill of hard. rights you have to ask yourself do i feel supported here mm. do i feel support i have a right to feel supported. i have a right to feel supported that is probably the top criterion for health and friendships. If you feel supported, it's a very good indicator that you're in a good place. Wow, wow. That would be the top one. It's fairly simple. It's also the recognition that they, they may be messy. They may involve speaking up about something that hurts and being vulnerable and being able to deal with the fact that it's another individual person who may decide to go the other way or may yeah. decide to increase his or her investment in the relationship with you. And the practice of if they do reject you, the practice of letting it go without creating a voodoo doll in their shape and dragging them through judgment and anger and how dare you and gossip and all that stuff. That's that's another spiritual practice. There's an entire book on friendship breakups. and There is? Yes, a New York University professor wrote a book on it. And it's a very painful phenomenon. And it happens to most of us at one point in our lifetime where we have to let go. And I think it's very important not to engage in the voodoo doll. And in fact, to give them blessings to think about and meditate upon what have I gained from this relationship? How am I better for having known you? And gratitude. That right. song in Wicked even talks about yes. it. You know, I'm, I'm better. I'm, I'm better, better for, having, for known. having known you. And wishing the person well, and moving on, and really, really capturing how did this person positively impact my life? I've had to say goodbye to a friend or two in my life, yeah. and I've always made sure to to send blessings their way mm. and to also capture what they've given me and God, be grateful I, for it. I'm looking back. I've, uh, there is some, some messy entrails behind me on that front. I think I've said thank you next to a few friendships and I didn't do it elegantly. That's, yeah. that's giving me something to so think about. So posthumously, you can now yeah. take a moment, you could share it with Sal, with, yeah. with a friend and say, you could do it verbally, you could do it in your diary, you could yeah. do it quietly in the car and with your, not while you're driving, uh, with your eyes closed <laughs> when you're parked safely. Yes. Uh, and, and really meditate upon how did this person make me a better person? Yeah. And then uh, what are the, the gifts I hope I gave him or her? Oh, I know what I wanted to ask you. This is important. This is really important. Hit me. How do you meet high quality friends in middle age, baby? Oh, Tell me. How do you find those eagles? Dollar. How do you find Ross Perot's eagles? Indeed. It, it is a numbers game, almost like dating. Mm. It's vulnerable. And the places that you can meet them are, of course, areas where you're already interested. Going, first of all, it means being willing to hit the control delete button yeah. and and go out on a Saturday when you really feel like Netflixing yes. uh, the entire weekend. Right. And getting outside your comfort zone, 
going out, perhaps walking the dog if you have one. I remember after my last dog died, Yeah, oh, we I did a mozi and who actually introduced me to you. Yeah, I met you at a dog park. We, we met at a dog <laughs> park, so that's actually one of my top places. But after he died, one of my parts in grieving was actually taking accounting of all the people who have come into my life as a result Thanks of this dog. dog. And so if you have a dog, mm. walk the dog. If you have a cause that you care about, go participate in that cause. If you are at all physically inclined, do one of these organized bike rides or runs and go on the practice runs. And if somebody seems interesting to you, be willing to do the awkward, hey, let's grab coffee. Let's go grab some coffee. Let's go hang out and be willing to tolerate the discomfort, be willing to tolerate the idea that you might get rejected. Yeah. Be willing to tolerate the idea that you might meet the person and be rather unamused by who you underwhelmed by whom you meet. And I think too, just like with relationships, like I met Sal on a blind date. Right. And recently you texted me and you were like, you've got to meet this woman. So that's the next place. And I went on a blind (laughs) friend date with this new, hi, Michelle, if you're listening, I love your guts. And I, as well you should, as well I should. And I remember driving to meet her on this hike and I was like, oh my God, this is so dorky. A little vulnerable, it's right? so dorky. The movie I Love You, Man is one of my all-time favorite oh, movies so good. because you see this guy who actually says, I don't have the book on this. This is so hard to find adult friendships. He has no, he's about to get married. He has no he has adult no friends. He, and his wife has like seven friends and he has nobody. Yeah. So it's, it's, Fabulous. Paul Rudd stars in it. If you haven't seen it, Jason Segel steals the show, as always. A couple other places to look. You can sit at, there are these communal dining places where you can sit with people that you've never met. Yeah. Uh, You can go on a a weekend for a learning trip. There are these places where you can learn about a topic that just interests you. There are meetups. Yeah. One of my favorite ways is joining a board of something that matters to you. Yeah, like a nonprofit or a... Definitely. I remember when I moved in the area, I joined my children's school board. And several years ago, when we were facing a difficult time, and my gosh, the bonds that were creating dirt in that difficult time on the board uh, of hanging out with these amazing people who had similar values. Wow. Values are probably one of the biggest predictors of whether or not we're going to have good friends. If the values are in common, and the way to find that out, you can go to the University of Pennsylvania's website. There's a values in action inventory questionnaire. It takes about, I think they actually shrunk it from 40 minutes to 20 minutes, which is, makes wow. it more sufferable. Wow. Suffer through the questionnaire. You'll find, you'll be very happy with the top five strengths that you find, but you're going to want to have those strengths, at least one of those five strengths in common with your friends. It's a predictor of sustainability. Interesting. Um, oh, love you of, know, I'm just realizing that some of my least successful friendships and relationships, now that I really think about it, were because I over-prioritized humor. If somebody's funny, Adam... It's a big deal. I will tolerate a lot of bullshit sure. because I value people that make me laugh. The problem is that is not a great foundation upon which to build something big. That should last for a long that time. That should last for a long time because what that, that doesn't say anything about honesty or integrity or congeniality. It's just they're fucking funny. And that's a big deal. And, it's and a big, that's have, a big currency for yeah, you. I've over-rotated on relationships that are built on a foundation of just humor and have been gravely disappointed. Yeah. Oftentimes we think, you know, that's my the only thing that matters. Oddly enough, one of the things that I've actually studied has been asking 
elderly people who have been married for a very long time, what has been the top predictor of, you know, you being happy with, they laugh together. So it doesn't necessarily mean that they share a sense of humor, but they do laugh together. Yeah. Um, so so there's, some, there's something there. But, and it's so that funny alone. you say that, because Sal and I have totally different senses of humor, but we laugh yeah, a lot together. Too. Isn't that funny? Like, you would think that we would sync up with people that have the same senses of humor as we do, but we don't. Right. Which is weird. And there are other values that you and Sal share yeah. in common that are Tons. far more important than, than humor. So you've got actual evidence in, in your years of marriage. But uh, that is the million dollar question. The dog park is a, a fabulous place. Going to the gym, working out, yeah. taking classes, yes. taking organized classes. Your person who's at Orange Theory who's working out with you, yeah. who seems interesting. Be willing just to do some little sniffs. Just ask, just hey, exploratory hey bits. Who, who are you? What are you into? Yeah. Uh, oh, there's another weird thing that's happening, Adam. And that is because I have a podcast and I speak to my audience as if they were in the room with me one-on-one. Which is brilliant. Which is fun, and I love it, and it's what I do. But when people meet me, they have 30 episodes of intimacy with me, and I have nothing with them. And there's this weird moment where they look at me and go, oh my God, I feel like I know you. And I look at them and I'm like... <laughs> you don't feel it. I don't know what to say to that. It's not reciprocal. It's, well, and I feel bad because I want to feel like I know them, but I, I don't know what to say. Sure. And you can just say, wow, I'm really, <laughs> I'm really complimented by that. Or you could try to tap into, is there something? Is there a quality within that other person that you can get in touch with right now? Yeah. Like, wow, there does appear to be something here if there is, and if, if it's not inauthentic. Yeah. And it's a very awkward thing when yeah. somebody says to you, it's a, the rough equivalent of brokering and I love you in the relationship and saying, I, and I think you're really, I think you're really awesome, but I don't love you back. <laughs> um, and it's just, it's just so painful that that's kind of hanging out there in the ethers. Yeah. But one of the things that you're talking about mm-hmm. is there are actually studies that indicate how long it takes to make a friend. Ooh, and a lot of people say? feel it very quickly with yeah, you because yeah. you're a very likable person. Oh, and that's that. one of the qualities like, that takes one to know one. Well, thank you. <laughs> And people will gravitate to magnets. And sometimes anybody who's a magnet will tell you very candidly, it is a blessing and a curse because I, you know, I have met some great people I wouldn't have otherwise met and attracted people in my life. And sometimes it's very uncomfortable for me to try to gently and diplomatically separate myself from this other person. But in terms of how long it takes to make a friend and an isolation cube with one-on-one, it can take up as as few as six days, but there are different types of friends. How the hell did they come (laughs) up with that? Those poor people. It was research. Isolation cube. Isn't that hilarious? (laughs) But it was actually done. But to have a friend versus a, a good friend, which is a big differentiator, it takes about between three to nine weeks to make a friend on Mm, average. You can mm. feel a kinship with somebody immediately. Mm. Um, Three to nine weeks seems pretty reasonable. It seems Pretty reasonable. And then to become a good friend can take about four months or longer. That's all it takes. Wow. But it takes the willingness to attend to and slog it out. One of my all-time favorite hacks, by the way, is just calling somebody who I care about, mm. who I just kind of borrow from that Stevie Wonder song. I just, I'm just calling to say, say I, love I love you. you. I'm just calling to say I love you, man. Just, just have absolutely no agenda. I just thought of you for no good reason, and I'm just saying what's up. And it can really reignite a friendship, and that is another way to really find friends is to look through your contacts. Who would I like to? Who do I love? Perhaps increase 
Yeah. My, my, what, my out of the existing battery of relationships you have. Totally. And am I willing to say, I've got a good buddy, Bob. He's fabulous. He lives in Sebastopol. It's his only negative trait. He lives far from my home. Yeah. And we make sure we have regular mandates, just like you and Naomi and Aaron do. I love And that. I got to tell you, as I'm driving to the city, which is our halfway point, I'm thinking to myself, man, I'm tired. I don't want to drive to the city on a Saturday. And then I see him and it's all worth good. It. And it's I drive home it. and I'm feeling three inches taller. Yeah. And it was the best investment of time. But look through yeah. your contacts yeah. and ask yourself, is there somebody here with whom I could have a better relationship? Yeah. Look around work. Is there somebody who's attractive to you yeah. in some way, shape or form? Yeah. Go for it. Get out of your comfort zone. And that's, I think to me, if people take nothing else from this conversation, Adam, it is that I want to dispel this myth that friendship cultivation is easy. We're born with it. Right. And it's no big whoop. And it shouldn't be that hard. It's hard. It is hard. <laughs> and it's, it's worth totally it. It's totally fucking hard. And it's worth it. So worth it. It's worth it. Book clubs, another good place to yes, go. Yes, I love book clubs. You can really find out how somebody thinks. Yeah. I love what Malcolm Gladwell said in his book, Blink. He said, you could find out more about a person by looking at their bookshelf than talking to them for an hour. God, it's really true. You it's learn really so true. much about what a person values or what they aspire to become by their bookshelf. <laughs> if you walked into my house, you'd be like, wow, she's really into dystopian fiction. She thinks the shit's about to hit the fiction. <laughs> <laughs> I got to clean up my bookshelf. Yeah, yeah. No, Put in some of the aspirational stuff, not just the catastrophe. Yeah, well, that's true. I do have a bunch of self-helpy stuff and Lord of the Rings and stuff, but I'm just laughing. But there could be some really cool people who are just super into dystopians and like, yeah. oh my gosh, you totally yeah. buy it with me. Actually, my two best friends, super into dystopian fiction. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Anything else we should call? Oh my gosh, I would love it if you could make a Venn diagram. A Venn diagram is a fancy way of saying two circles with you and the other person. You're not going to find a carbon copy, but you'll find places of confluence between the two of you. Mm. And I was wondering, you know, if you were to draw a Venn diagram between you and your friends, how are you similar? How are you different? What matters? What doesn't matter? How do the differences really increased the quality of your life by just knowing somebody who thinks differently. That's right. I remember, I mean, so many of my thoughts have been cultivated by having friends who think differently from the way I think. And our friends turn us on to new ideas, new music. I mean, I remember in sixth grade, I mean, when my friend turned me on to Queen, it was like, oh my gosh, game changer. Total. So huge. Yeah, total. And I think too, in our crazy social media political environment, we are demonizing people that believe differently than we do. And I worry about the future if we don't know how to be in proximity with people that don't see the world the same way we do. Yeah, I have friends who think vastly differently from yeah. the way I think politically. Mm-hmm. And the commonality is the values. Yeah. I mean, they're good people. They're they good would people. show up. They would show up at that 3 a.m. call of like, oh my gosh, I need help. Yeah. And that's a really good friend. It is. I love everything about the TV show Friends. I guess just to maybe cap it off, even the song by the Rembrandts, they talk about I'll be there for you. Yeah. And that is... And you'll be there for me too. And you'll be there for me too. Let's not forget the reciprocity of that song. Totally. And no one told you life was going to be this way. It's a shit show. It's just... It's perfect. And yeah, it's just... It's that mirroring that you get from your friend. It's that coordination of of emotions and thoughts and yeah. all of that good stuff yeah. that makes life worth living. I you know, agree. on a person's deathbed, they don't think about their accomplishments so much. They don't think about the countries they visited. They think about their relationships. Yes. If people think that relationships don't matter, 
talk to the people who are on their deathbeds and ask them what has mattered. And invariably, it will have been that. Wow. I love that. I love that. Is there anything else you want to talk about? Because I feel like that is a real good note to end on. I think it's a good note to end on. I love it. And I just want to close also by saying this whole episode is a love letter to my two best friends, Naomi and Aaron, and to my husband, Sal. They are the three greatest things that have ever happened to me aside from my kids. But I, I just want them to know that. And I'd say this is a love letter to my friends over time, my wife's friends over time. And it's interesting. I decided to go steady when I was dating my wife after I met her friends because I knew. Uh, did you say to yourself, I'm going steady? I'm totally going steady with this woman because <laughs> I've met her friends. I now know who her advisory board is. Ooh. I like them. They're just as full of integrity as she described them to have been. She did not grossly describe their positive attributes. She was accurate. And Wow. These were people I would want as my own friends. So I've, I just, I'm so thankful, just as you are, to my friends who've helped dissipate all of the energy in my life and who've high fived me when I was up and And hung and vibed. Hung and who hang and vibe. So I'm with you. I love it. Thank you so much, Adam. Thank you, Bronwyn.